Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 115 with Catherine Goldschmidt, DP of House of the Dragon. Enjoy. Are you watching anything cool yourself? Well, I knew you were going to ask me because I have listened to your podcast before. Um, the problem is I'm deep in production right now, so it's it's I find it difficult. It's not just the time that I have, which is little, but it's also just the headspace that you get into when you're making your own thing and like not wanting to pollute that somehow. But um, but that said, I did recently watch um. The Brooke Shields documentary that I think is on Hulu in the States, sure. um, on Disney Plus here, um, that my friend Lana Wilson made. And I thought it was excellent, actually. Um, so that's a recent watch of mine that I can <laughs> remember. Yeah, I was just, I was talking to, um, uh, I think it was Benji Bakshi, mm-hmm. who, who shot uh, Strange New Worlds. And he had a similar thing where it was like, and a lot of DPs have brought this up, um, where it was just like, if you're working on something, you know, basically why go home and then almost go back to work by watching something? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little close to home, although the opposite of home, but yeah, it's, it's a little close and yeah. And you're also just looking at a screen all day long as well. And then to go home to more screens. Um, so yeah, I usually just look at my dog and then hello. <laughs> yeah. I actually, speaking of screens, this has started happening to me. I, I got scared. I thought I got like macular degeneration. I was staring. I like got a day off. So I was like, you know what? I haven't played a video game in a year and a half. Let me do this. I'm you know, doing that. And then I went to edit. I'm looking at a screen. Then I was looking at my phone. And the next morning, it still hasn't quite gone away. But the next morning, my left eye, I could see the back of my retina like in my vision. And, uh, so that's, yeah, it's not rad, but, um, it, it didn't occur to me until now, like the, eye looking through an eyepiece of like a film, traditional film camera won't give you that, you know, it's the ground glass and stuff, but I'm wondering like, shit, are we going to, are we going to start going blind? Cause we're just constantly focused, you know, like a foot in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, you know, on the digital when you're in the black tent and you just have these like, you know, it's not just the screens, but, you know, you have the waveform and the this and, you know, and everything is just sort of like shining at you constantly. Um, yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully we won't want. We need our eyes. <laughs> so uh, a little, that was the scariest part. I was like, oh shit, am I going to have to go into music? Um, but I guess that Apropos of nothing, you brought up the tent. Are you working with a uh, on the show you're working on? Is are you doing like the onset colorist, or do you, or is that just like the viewing tent? Um, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm doing season two right now of House of the Dragon, and um, the tent is is the DIT's tent. So um, so we do have live grade. We we you know I personally use it sparingly, um, but uh, so yeah. So that's the tent I refer to. Yeah. So, um, do you kind of go in setting like a base look and then it gets tweaked on set or, um, do you kind of just let the DIT figure it out and you just kind of okayed something at the beginning? I guess that's the same thing, but, but yeah, kind of what's your approach to. Yeah. Well, we have, we have, we have a show lot. Um, so that's, 
it's, it's literally just one LUT across the show. So, you know, so everybody starts with that. Um, and then, yeah, when I'm going into a scene, you know, um, I mean, it's it, the first conversation is always like, you know, what should we set the color balance to on the camera? And that is really sort of like the basis for then, you know, then where I set the lights and and how we build the color from there. Um, yeah. Makes sense. But yeah. And, and to be honest, I usually don't do too much more than color balance and... You know, and and you know, we make minor adjustments for certain lenses. You know, um, uh, and and we you know we come to know sort of what those are over the course of a show as well. Um, so yeah, and that's try to keep it simple, honestly. Yeah, I found so I I started freelance coloring because I was coloring all my own stuff, um, but over the pandemic, I was doing a lot, and I found that like. I feel like people get a little too in the weeds with, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you get the the panel, you know, you can really start spinning knobs around it. It's like just a little like white balance and tint and maybe the contrast knob, but it's like, it's all you need. You know, it's like nice. What do they say about nice food? You just need salt and pepper. You don't got to. Yeah, 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 exactly. If the ingredients are good, then, you know, exactly. Yeah. I, d- I did want to ask, because I think you've got to be the one of the few American BSC members. How did you, how did that come about? How did, like, you must have been working there for ever to get that distinguishment. Yeah, so I've lived here, um, as in England. I live in London. I lived in London for nine years now, um, and my husband is English, so that is how I see. we came there. Yeah, so he he first tried living in L.A., so we did that for, well, I had lived in L.A. for almost 10 years, Um and he tried for three, the length of like the first green card you get. And when that was up for renewal, uh, the next one you get is permanent. And he was like, so is this it? Are we always living in your country now? Or, you know, right. what's the deal? And so, I don't know. You know, I this this job is portable, isn't it? And um, yeah. I just thought, well, if I can do it here, I can do it there. And I'm traveling for work all the time anyway. And let's give it a shot. And, um, and yeah, so... Yeah, so that's what that's that's that story, but um, but yeah, the BSC thing was you know a huge honor and um, and yeah, and I'm thrilled. I, I only just joined like, you know, two months ago. So oh really? Oh okay, okay, cool. Yeah, no, it was recent. Yeah, because I got um, uh, I got that book. Shit, where is it? Oh yeah, no, I'm not in that book. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> when I when I because I saw you you uh had co-founded was it Illuminatrix the yeah, DP yeah, 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 yeah. not conglomerate but um but I saw collective. collective thank you uh and uh I saw Ula Pontigos is in there I was like oh I interviewed her uh and she was great so I went looking for you in the book I was like oh fuck she it's already out of print <laughs> already out of print yeah they they just need to like um you know add in some inserts or whatever to uh keep it current. <laughs> Like they do with the ASC manual, you like open it up and pages fall out and they're like, oh, sorry, after we printed this, we realized our charts were wrong. <laughs> Great. Yeah, exactly. So how does that come about? Because because I know with like the ASC, it's this whole like, you know, oh, two people have to vouch for you. And then there's like a secret society with a box of black balls and white balls, whatever the hell they do. Uh, with the BSC, is it more relaxed? Is it more stringent? Like how how did they reach out to you about it? Yeah, so you, 
I guess it's similar. I mean, I I don't know exactly how the ASC works because I'm not in that organization. But the BSC is also you are nominated by two um, people who have been in the BSC in good standing for, I think, five years or more. Um, so you have a, yes, one person who nominates you and another person who seconds you. And so, yeah, so they write nice things about you. And then I think also say nice things when they all have their meeting. Um, so, yeah, Fabian Wagner was... Um, oh, cool. ...amended me. It was really cool. Yeah, so he was the lead DP, obviously, on House of Dragon season one. Um, so, yeah, he recommended me for membership. And then um, Angus Hudson was my seconder. That's so awesome. That was, yeah, it was good. Yeah, Fabian's got an awesome... Uh... I don't, I, I don't know him off the top of the head, but I've run into his name a million times. He's got a great uh, CV on him, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, tons of thrones and the crown and then um, worked with Zack Snyder. And yeah, no, I mean, he's he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess. Uh, so I was not a Game of Thrones person necessarily. When I was in college, the first couple seasons came out and I stuck with it then and then fell off because I'm really bad at watching anything that's longer than a mini mini series. But um do were you were you a Game of Thrones person before getting the uh House of Dragons gig or did you kind of have to go back and watch stuff get boned up on it? I am with you on the it's difficult for me to stay invested in a series over the yeah. long haul. And that is I think partially my I'm I'm just gonna blame my childhood because <laughs> Um, so I grew up without a television, so we weren't allowed to watch anything. Oh, wow. We were taken to the movies and we also had like a VHS player connected to a box that was not connected to anything else. So we could rent movies and, but it was very like strict and structured and at certain times of day and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I just don't have that, like come home from work and turn on the television and, 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 and also I don't have the serialized, like binge so all that's difficult for me anyway all that being said um i i was i remember when the first season came out because i had just read the first book so then i watched the first season and i was like oh this is awesome this is exactly how i'm going to digest this from here on out and so then i got the second book and somewhere along the line i put that down and i did not finish the second book and therefore i did not immediately finished the second series either and um but anyway but then then I went back to it and I and I went back to it by the time the show was ending because by that point I had moved to England but I was back in LA doing a show um called Dummy and my whole crew every Monday morning was just like gushing 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 so it became this whole thing where like everybody had to watch it on Sunday so they could come in on Monday and talk about it so that's when I caught up. Um, and yeah, so anyway, so I, it's, you know, there are fans and then, and then there's me who like, you know, really, really loved the show and was really psyched to get, it was Fabian who called me about it actually originally. Um, so, and, you know, and I was a huge fan of his work. And so anyway, so that was, that was a no brainer for me, but, but that's the, that is the whole story about my relationship <laughs> sure. Do you do you find that um because uh, I interviewed a handful of uh people who shot Star Trek and you know that's 
certainly one of those shows that like have, uh, as I've mentioned, Mark Hamill calls them ultra passionate fans, <laughs> you know, yes. the UPS. Do you find that coming in with kind of a fresh eye has not, maybe not fresh, but, um, a slightly, uh, removed from that deep fan. Do you find that is helpful to you or, or potentially, um, did you need to get like reminded of stuff by maybe people on the group who are like, no, no, no. Yeah, so, I mean, it was on season one anyway, it was a good mix, I think, of both people who had done the original show and then and then newbies mm. and franchise. Because, you know, n- nobody wanted to just remake the show. That wasn't the idea. But that being said, it was helpful to have, you know, people around who knew the world and knew how it worked and knew, you know, certain, yeah, certain things obviously, like, need to be consistent. Um, so... Um, so yeah, so I, I I think it really was a good balance, and obviously everybody on the show is, you know, a very good student and does their research, and um, and so you know, so we spent a lot of time, you know, boning up on old episodes that you know might have we might have forgotten about that we needed to reference for X Y Z reasons that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, did I saw in a in a different interview you did that. Um... You know, you wanted to create your own look with the show, but you had mentioned, a, a, but still keeping relatively consistent, but that you would introduce things like, um, in your example, Steadicam, which wasn't used in Game of Thrones. And it kind of made me think like, God, Game of Thrones was, it feels so recent, but it was, you know, like what, 2009, something like that when it started. Um, how have the, obviously you didn't shoot Game of Thrones, but how have the more modern tools now, you know, maybe a, a decade later, um, helped with this show or just or your career in general like over over a span of time yeah well so i mean just to clarify i i, I think it wasn't that steadicam wasn't available when they were shooting it was it was yeah, just really, didn't use it yeah exactly exactly that they really it was shot in this very considered classic way um so lots of you know dolly moves and crane and etc um but your question sorry what was your your actual question oh, was just tools? Yeah, because so the uh, thank you for actually correcting because this is the uh, ADHD in me that maybe <laughs> people find interesting or hopefully interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, because I was thinking like, oh, you know, back in 08, 09, up through 2012, maybe there's this very interesting kind of change in, in filmmaking, I feel, where there was that very traditional filmmaking style that then was modified by whether it be visual effects techniques or new, you know, digital cameras led for instance um stuff like that and so when you mentioned like oh we added steadicam i was like that is funny that like that's such a tool that we would just be of course you would you know or a gimbal or whatever but um back then it's it maybe not for every show but it did feel a bit more no-no you know there was that was a very specific tool Mm. so the so so the question being um you know, over your career, how have the more modern tools that were, I saw you were shooting on like the 65 for this show. Um, but you know, like led lights, the massive sensor stuff like that, how, how have those maybe helped or even hurt your workflow or if anything, I mean, I, mind? yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I definitely think, you know, new tools should be, and you know, and I embrace them. Right. So, so, you know, it was interesting you know, last year there was um, on the show we were using a lot more tungsten lighting, and that's something that 
that Fabs is a big fan of. And so because he set up the show, like that's what the package, you know, consisted of predominantly. And, you know, and I came on and wanted, you know, because he, he basically would never, you know, use an Astera tube to do any kind of like fiery thing. And put it on and, the chart. We are we mentioned the Astera tubes. <laughs> and meanwhile, like you know, because he and I like co-taught this class recently at the NFTS. And so, oh, so it, it was his class and I was sort of just, you know, um, there for, you know, like the dynamic duo or whatever. But I, I he purposely invited me to be like, there's no one way to do this stuff, kids. And so he's going on about how, you know, we use real flame. And if we need to supplement the flame, it's just, you know, a little bit of, of tungsten and that's it. And I'm like, mm, I, but I actually did you know, slip some tubes in there for this one scene and blah, blah, blah. so, so yeah. So, and, and this season, um, I don't think I'm breaking my NDA by saying that we are using a lot more LED. Um, so, so I yeah. I can't so imagine I, that's under an NDA. Don't, don't mention panels. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I both think that that there's something to be said for, um, you know, especially for this show, you know, we do try to, you know, ground the camera choices in, you know, in reality so that even when we're doing, you know, dragons flying through the air or whatever, it's like the camera ought to be dragon mounted, you know, or it ought to be dragon, you know, so it doesn't feel like mm. just sort of floating in the air uh, with no... Um, you know, no, no, no basis in what is the, what, what would the reality of this situation be? So, um, so that does sort of lend itself to, you know, more crane work and more, you know, rather than, I don't know, zippy drone shots or something. Right. Um, so, so, you know, so the, so it's the creative that informs the, what the tools are, if that makes sense. Yeah. The one thing with, LED that I've noticed and, and it, you know, I, I try to be as I, I suppose pragmatic's not the right word, but like realistic about things like tungsten does have a punchier, like something skin, tungsten and skin really love each other. And I, yeah. I, I have yet to find an LED, even the super powerful ones that do, does that thing, you know, yeah. and s sometimes you can tell like certain movies, certain shows, it's kind of like. I don't want to say they look cheap, but you can you can feel that um, lack of reality. You know, it might be mounting a camera to a dragon, uh, you know, where an operator would be. But in some cases, it is like even just the quality of light can make things not quite feel. Oh, no, totally, totally. And I think that's you know that's something that I that I learned you know from Vabs is just that like you know if you can do it with a real flame, you know, you should because then it's real. Yeah. The uh, that. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes the actors are walking around and you can't put a flight where you want it, so it's a tube. Yeah. The, uh, I, well, ADHD again. Have you heard of the uh, the hydro panels? Uh, I don't think so. Who makes so, them? Astera, so. Oh, oh, oh. No, I haven't. Waste some time here. They sent me <laughs> these things, and, I, and I'm curious on your, they just sent me these things. Uh, and I don't quite know how I would use them. So now I'm going to just ask you. But they're same technology as the tubes, but they're these little bricks. And they have like um, focusing screens and grids and stuff like that. But there's a little magnet on the back and little mounting points. But the tubes, everyone mentioned every single interview. 
someone mentions using the stair tubes somewhere. And I'm wondering, would something like this off the top of your head fit the same utility? Because I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I'm sure they're making them, you know, to supplement, right? Not to replace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, sometimes the tube form is annoying to me, you know, mm. and and I'll put them together and I'll wrap a whole bunch of diffusion around them just so that it, if it's reflecting in somebody's eye or whatever, it's not just that line, you know? And, um, and so, so yeah, so I am looking for ways to hide the tubeness. So something that small, you can hide it, you know, behind a, behind a computer or behind, you know, anyway, I'm looking at a computer. That's why I'm thinking about it. But um, sure. behind anything blocky on a table, you could just sort of prop it up. And I can think of applications. Yeah. Well, and the, the reason I bring it up is because like, I, I don't do enough work where I don't do any work where sets are being built for me. And for, I feel like the, the stair tubes or even panels, the hydro panels there, or anything like that feel more like things that would be built into a set and less often um, supplements for like a key light or something like that. But um, do, do you feel that way? Like what, actually that's a great question. What was your relationship like with the production design team? Cause obviously you don't get in uh, ye olden times, you don't, you don't get light pictures. Everything's motivated by a window or a flame, you know? So how, yeah. how are you dealing with, not dealing with how are you working with the uh, production design team trying to come up with motivation did you have any input oh yeah 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 all the time um in fact yeah i think <laughs> this this season there's some sort of running joke about like which department has katie not asked to cut a hole in something that's there so put a light through it and right now i've done it you know definitely production production design is the first people in construction um, because I'm always like, can we can we put a hole there in that part of the set, you know? Um, but uh, you know, I asked costume uh if we could, you know, cut a little hole to run a little wire for a little light behind a candle. I asked stunts um if I could cut a hole in some of their stuff. I asked uh, <laughs> uh He leaves yeah. the set and it's just Swiss cheese. <laughs> Yeah. 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 The, the special effects department has cut holes in their stuff. So yeah, no, it's, it's always a collaboration between all the departments, you know, where, where, where is the light coming from? Um, but you're right in, you know, in Game of Thrones world, you know, it, it does realistically, practically only come from um, windows and flame sources. And when you're exterior, obviously the sky. Um, but uh, so yeah, so, so for sets where there are no windows, then, um, and even sets where there are, you know, because not, not, there are certain scenes where you want to be motivated, you know, that, that's the first thing I ask myself is like, where would the light be coming from in this scene? Um, and, and how, and how can we, you know, how can we improve on that or, or, or make it, make it work for what the blocking is or what the, you know, what, what, what what's happening basically in the scene. So, um, so yeah, so I work really closely with both the production designer and then the set, the set decorator, um, Claire Richards is always a huge fan of mine. Cause I'm always like, 
where are the tortiers and where are the, you know, where are the candles and where's the this and where's the that? So, but she's amazing and she always, she always comes through for me. That's rad. Is it um, easier to, my, my brain's just in the Star Trek world because it's in so many of those, but is it easier to, or harder to light a set, light a person when the motivation for said light is relatively apparent, you know, window, fire, whatever, versus something like Doctor Who, where, you know, in the TARDIS or whatever, you got lights coming from everywhere. You know, there's, it's, it can be a lot more, you know, what's that phrase? If you have two lights, you have two problems. If you have one light, you have one problem. I imagine yeah. the more sci-fi stuff, you've got 107 problems. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. The TARDIS is, is a lighting problem unto itself. The season I did was the second, um, yeah, Chris Chibnall had taken over as showrunner the season before I got there. So they had sort of established already this, you know, new Redux TARDIS or whatever on the previous season. But, you know, that show at that time, I actually hear that um, budget-wise it's improved. But at mm. that time, it was like the paint was not yet dry and we were shooting on the set. And so that had happened to them in the season before where they had like just finished making it. And um, and the DP showed up and just like had zero time to balance out, you know, what lights were, what colors and how all that worked. And so the season that I started, I sort of heard about that nightmare. And I and because the set was happily standing from before, I was able to get in there early, you know, and and start balancing that set both, you know, both unto itself and then and then with the LUT that we had and the camera and, and the color balance and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, that was definitely a project that um that it was important that I take on because they spent a lot of money in post trying to fix people's, you know, skin tones and stuff because it was a total, you know, it's kind of a cluster in there basically. Yes. Well, it it's fascinating. I've been a speaking of fandoms, I've been a you know, pretty big Doctor Who fan my whole life. Me and my girlfriend met because of Doctor Who. And um, it's amazing. It is fun. Um, But uh, it is amazing how much everyone who's worked on that show. I got to interview the uh, costume designer from the first couple seasons. That was, she was like, we had five bucks. Uh, um, But it's amazing what that all of the teams, including you, are able to do with what ends up you find out being a relatively limited budget yep yeah no it's that there's some delightfully old school things i'll give you an example the tardis itself it comes on location in four pieces because it's a box and you know like you can just picture it right and and then when they open the door on the inside it's just a um you know it, it at least when i was showing you it's not even a blue screen it's it's like a it's a picture it's a picture <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's very I I mean I yeah I had such a good time working on that show. It's so fun and and yeah and everybody who does it, you know, does it for the love really. It's just it's just a riot. So yeah. Well, you also get the uh the distinguished position I suppose of being I can't imagine there's too many Americans who shot that show, but also uh that's like being working on Doctor Who has got to be like uh being on law and order in new york like if you do that you're officially a new yorker like you shot doctor who so you're officially british 
Yeah, that's how it felt, actually. That is exactly how it felt. Because, um, yeah, I, for, I, think, I think I shot it in the year I got my British passport as well. So it's just like tick, tick. Yeah. Did you, um, I guess, same questions before, did you come into that show uh, having seen it, been a fan, or, or was that kind of a new job that you're like, oh, time to learn about this one too? Yeah, I had, I, before my interview, I had literally never, ever watched it. Um, so obviously knew what it was um, and knew what the TARDIS was. And, you know, I, I could like, you know, answer a few basic pieces together. Yeah. But no, I had to do a deep dive basically and, and really bone up, but it's really difficult because <laughs> there's decades, yeah. decades to watch. So you have to ask the internet, you know, what is the best Doctor Who episode? And then they give you this big list and you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are some great ones out there and and it is it is a great show and it's a great, you know, it's a great dynasty to be a part of or whatever. Yeah. You saw uh, you said you shot the second Jodie Whittaker season? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um it looked great, by the way. Like I, you know, the every year they they you know, make it look better, but yeah, that that season, first season, second season looked um you know, just like a movie, just like anything else, you know, so good work there. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it was, it was really fun. Um, I have to say, so because they were shooting anamorphic, that was a fun, right. Particularly, um, for my director who I was working with Jamie Stone, whose whole thing is 14 millimeter lens, this close to an actor's face. And then you just pull out, you know, and I had to be like, that on this format like so anyway so we had to carry some wide spherical primes to do certain shots and um and that was fine but yeah no they were yeah they were very we 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 tried for a hot second to see if they would consider switching the format and it was it was no because they had just switched the season before and had loved it so yeah i mean it's a great look did they go so far as to try to replicate the anamorphic look in in post on when you were shooting spherical or did they just kind of let it play? No, no. I, I, I think they just let it play. Yeah. 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 yeah although, although I will say the, the colorist did have a large, the colorist is, um, Gareth Spensley. He's been doing that show for years and he's wonderful. And he does have a very large catalog, um, of, you know, certain flares and stuff like that. So mm. some of that stuff, you know, gets added at that stage, but um, but yeah, I can't remember any specific examples from my episodes. Um, sure. but, but again, you know, r- r- quote unquote, relatively low budget show. You know, that's not something that necessarily needs to be done for what is ostensibly a weekly serial. You know, yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. no one's nitpicking that hard. Hopefully, <laughs> well, some people. Um, but that does bring up a, a an interesting question is, is, um, you know, in what ways I've been able to ask this about people like East coast, West coast, but in what ways, uh, is the UK style of shooting different from the U S um, and better or worse, uh, for your own personal, like, uh, workflow, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, there's a few key differences, uh, Chiefly, the grip department is very different here. So they only deal with camera um, mm. as you know, 
cranes and dollies and you know all of that is what they do and they have nothing to do with lighting so if you hand to grip a c-stand over here look at Stabbed you with it. <laughs> yeah. we'll be like why am i supposed to do this um so that was a big you know difference uh so yeah so everything everything goes through the gaffer um when it comes to lighting and how you want to cut and shape light, it's all it's all the electrical department. Um, what else is different? I mean, just in terms of, you know, working hours, a standard working day here is 10 hours on camera and 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 an hour for lunch, which is really <laughs> Damn. really intense. <laughs> So, so they have a they have a semi continuous working day, which is nine and a half hours on camera and a half an hour for lunch, and that feels a little bit more normal. Because when you stop for an hour in the middle of the day, you're like, and now what am I supposed to? You know, yeah, everybody, yeah, yeah, and everybody's just like, you know, the actors get out of costume, and you know, and and so and everybody comes back like all bleary eyed, and and it just takes that much longer to like get up and running again. So, um, so yeah, we try to not do standard working days so we can help it. Um, semi-continuous is much better. You get to go home effectively an hour earlier. Um, and then, and then we also sometimes do a continuous day, which is nine hours, no breaks. And that's excellent. Everybody With goes the, home at five and has a life. Do, do they do the, uh, the old just crafty walking around with snacks on a platter and just come on here, you eat that. I mean, there's they they still give us lunch, but you know, it's literally just like everybody, you know, standing around. They have to break the actors, of course. Um, right. But, but yeah, the rest of us are just like shoveling food in our faces as we're trying to run around and yeah, focus lights the, or whatever. The Anthony Bourdain standing over a trash can and wolfing whatever down method. <laughs> exactly. So, but everybody everybody does prefer it, you know. Like nobody wants to break. Everybody just wants to, you know, plow through get you know keep the momentum up get it done and then and then go home and have a tiny bit of a life before coming back to do it again so um so yeah so i do find the hours are um more humane in that way um and you know there's really no such thing as a fratter day over here we're about to do one of them next week and everybody is like what is this this <laughs> is not on that's what they say over here not on Oh. <laughs> Add that to the lexicon. So yeah, yeah. And I imagine yeah. th that helps with, you know, uh, if if we're gonna get maybe I don't know if in the weeds is the right word, but a little meta. But I I imagine the those kind of constant working hours really helps with the flow state. Like you're saying, you know, you you break for an hour. That's it's gonna take two hours to get the next shot off. You know. Um, yeah. but if you're working nine straight, it might be potentially more tiring, but the quality of work may actually end up being higher because again, you're constantly in that sort of flow state. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you say you have ADHD. I feel like the majority of people who work in film, you know, yeah. have it. So, so if you can just like stay on a task and do it. And then and then you're done. I just feel like it. It I don't know. It, it definitely suits my brain better as well. Um, well, so, yeah. 
for me, it's definitely like, so I don't, I've not been diagnosed with ADHD. TikTok would have me believe that I, everyone on TikTok wants to tell you how you've got ADHD and they'll tell you all the reasons why. But uh, assuming one of them is right, uh, I do find that the novelty of film work definitely suits my um, mental profile. You know, when given a new task that uh, collaborative um, problem solving is definitely what keeps the serotonin going or whatever, you know, whereas um, repetitive tasks by the third one, I'm just like, and I am out, you know, like start turning into Andy Dwyer, just, you know. Absolutely. Well, this is why, so I was diagnosed with AD actually in college. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why I switched majors. And this is why I couldn't be a camera assistant because that is actually quite repetitive. I mean, I was, but I just wasn't a very good one. Um, and, and yeah, and I think it's definitely why, you know, being on set is a great place for my brain because it's just like constant input, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and stimulus and like, and, you know, and the whole sort of like immediate gratification is all, is all there, you know, especially in what we do. Right. Because we are, we are literally, you know, and there's a time you know, that the the factor of time is just so critical, right? That like it's like and and when will you be lit? Like, you know, in 20 minutes? Great. And so you just have to like focus and do it in that time. Um and that's, you know, that's when I really just feel like I'm on and, you know, and let's do it. And if I'm, you know, if I'm left to my own devices by myself to do anything <laughs> without a time deadline is just you know what i'm saying it's not gonna happen oh it so i uh i write for pro video coalition which is like a film news um slash gear review website and they're very chill because they don't like i'm not an employee there you know we're all freelance and so companies will send me gear to review and sometimes it'll be months before that article goes up because i'm just fully uninspired not that the tech is bad or anything like i got the what is it, the black magic 12k they were like hey we're gonna do this i was like great and i just couldn't i could not be arsed as they say to to pick it up and go film something because i just had nothing nothing inspired you know i'm sure a, a uh you know neurotypical individual would be like oh i have to go do this now and go but those um imposed uh deadlines as you say are definitely very helpful for someone like me. Oh, yeah. 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 No, I I get everything done based on a deadline model. Yeah. For sure. Did, you said you switched majors. What was your major original? So I was a humanities major, joint humanities major. It was history, philosophy, literature, and a romance language. So it involved a lot of reading. And I realized I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was too much. <laughs> A lot of reading and a lot of writing. Um, Good background so, for film, though. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, it, you know, I was trying. I'll tell you what, I was trying to do both. I was trying to do that and a film studies major, and mm. uh, and that just became an an impossible amount of. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like the classes clashed, and it was just, you know, it was just logistically like I would have had to add another year onto my tenure at college, which I just thought. Nah, I'll just I'll just do film studies, and that was that was excellent. Yeah, you, you had mentioned earlier that you didn't have a television, and it. I was thinking about it, and I 
I did have television, but I didn't really watch it. I was much more like, I grew up in a very small town, 5,000 people total. So we had one theater, it had one screen. And then if you drove a half hour, there was a place that had like eight screens. And so we, me and my friends would pile in the car and go do that. But I, I, I do feel like that experience, like that escapism from that tiny ass town definitely is one of the major things that pushed me into film because it was the, that was the thing that got me out of there, you know? Um, hmm. Was it the same for you? Because like not having a TV, but being allowed to go see movies or at least rent them, but like feels like it's, it must have been kind of a, a similar experience for you. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely escapist, but uh, but also, you know, my my family genuinely all loves movies. Like to this day, you know, we have weekly Zoom calls and all we do is talk about movies um, and TV. We now do talk about TV. Sure. Now everybody watches TV. But um, so I think it was just like something we also did together as a family and it was like an activity and, um, you know, and we had we had a great local video store that I wound up working at in high school. And, you know, and we just would go together and like, you know, pick out what we were watching that night. And and um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I think. I don't know it, it, that that was. It, it was just, it was, it was a treat, basically. It was a treat right. that we got to do when, you know, when, when, when we were, you know, I don't know. Good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I shouldn't have been prescriptive and been like, that must've been the same for you. But, uh, I, I, I need to get better just asking a question instead of telling you what I think. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what uh no now that now that whole thought process is gone. I I do I do miss you know you were mentioning like being on set and then Game of Thrones come out and then on Monday like everyone was talking about it. I do kind of miss that. Well, we're starting to seemingly go back to that, but that that weekly release schedule did create more community and more discussion and more um you know love around your favorite shows and stuff like that. And I feel like going to the rental store and like staring at the wall and, and just picking based off a of box art, you know, or maybe trusting the weirdo working behind the register in my case. But, uh, the, that, that sort of non-film. Did you work at the store? No, my friend did. And he was a weirdo. Uh, oh, okay. Well, we but have I was, a section, you know, and if somebody came to the counter with your staff pick, you'd be like, Oh, that's mine. Like I'm Katie, you know, you're watching my pick. Yeah. You know, the whole thing. And so, you know, and people would call the store all the time to be like, what's new? That's good. That's in. And you'd have to like go to the back and be like, oh, well, this has just come in and people seem to like. Anyway, it's just you just talked to strangers about movies, which I don't do any, you know, I don't do it anymore. I mean, I, I talk to, you know, reporters, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it, yeah. it's it's something that I think you know, certainly made me love film was, is those non strictly film. You know, I was never, a, a um, even during college, I did not have a well curated critical mind. Um, that happened much later. I just enjoyed film and I enjoyed talking to my friends about it. And it does feel like unless you're on like internet forums, which are the worst place to discuss <laughs> films and television, uh, you don't get that experience anymore. And curate in in your case, curating films must have been so gratifying. It's you know, it's like you get to share things you love with other people. That's that's the best. 
No, it was really fun. And when I got to college, you know, the way, because I didn't know what I wanted to study, obviously, you can tell if I was enjoying humanities, it's like four things. Um, But, you know, but I started working in the, there was a, they ran a, um, a cinema screening. Anyway, there were two cinemas at the college and they ran a film, what's it called? Anyway, a, a series, film series throughout the year. So they would program all these films um, and and they would order in the prints. And so and so we were projecting on film on both 16 and 35. Um, and so so I immediately, you know, signed up to be um, and it was, a, you know, it was a paid job as well. So um, so, yeah, so I was a, a student film projectionist in the series and and it was through doing that that then people were like oh well are you you know are you interested in studying film are you going to be a film studies manager and it had just never occurred to me before that it was actually something you could study I literally just thought it was you know yeah like I said before it was a treat it was something you know we got to do when when we had done all our schoolwork or whatever yeah that does seem to be a, a common refrain amongst DPs that I've interviewed is like I, it, it feels kind of corny, but it, everyone going like, oh, I didn't know people made movies. I thought they just existed, you know, <laughs> they would yeah. just show up and then they were there. Yeah. There's people there. And um, the thing is, like, you, yeah, you, you see the credits, but, it, you know, especially if you grew up watching older films, which we did as well. My sister and I were just huge, like, you know, old movie musicals. And they, you know, they would list like two names, right? Yeah. You know? And up front, too. So you forget about them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I I guess I was aware that, you know, there was somebody behind the camera and somebody to do the costumes, but it literally just none of that clicked into place until I got to college. Yeah. I did want to ask a boring technical question that I'm sure we can get through. Uh, and that is, I did see that you were shooting Alexa 65 and LF. And I was wondering what the um, sort of unique challenges with working with such a large sensor are and what benefits does it bring you? Cause there's a big, uh, there's a lot of misinformation about larger sensors giving you a certain look. Most yeah. people don't actually know what that means, but you know, they're, they're taught, they're thinking lenses. They're not thinking sensors. So I was wondering your hands-on experience, what, um, does working on those larger format cameras, uh, give you and what do you have to think about more than super 35? Yeah. I mean, you, what do you have to think about more? You sort of have to, I mean, like, you know, similar to shooting anamorphic, say you have to sort of consider the focus plotter. Um, yeah. <laughs> one, one, eight mud figured out. It's on a one Oh five, you know, and depth of field. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of consideration to that. Interestingly, you know, because we had those two cameras to choose from, if we were doing a shot that was quite VFX heavy, they would often want us to do that on the LF just because of how that mm. sensor got cropped and how we had more room top and bottom for them to, you know, stabilize or wiggle stuff around or whatever. Um, so that was interesting because it was always sort of my default to be like, oh, if we're doing this big shot, we'll do it on the big camera. Um, and that wasn't always you know, the best for, for all departments. So, um, so yeah, so if we were doing something VFX heavy, then we'd have that discussion and, and weigh those pros and cons. Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to shoot a show with two cameras because 
because you are always sort of having to do the math in your head about like, okay, on the 65, I want it to be on this lens. But then if something happens last minute and suddenly I need to send this A camera off to do this other shot and the B camera has got to do the shot, then that means it should be on this lens. And so, you know, so we had like a, the assistants made us, um, you know, I wore it around my neck, but the little lens chart that sort of had the, you know, what all the focal lengths and then the equivalents, yeah, because that was definitely just something you had to get used to, really. Um, so, yeah. Were you using... Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. okay. <laughs> um, were you using... Because obviously with the 65, your lens choices are, you know, really reduced because there's not a lot of lenses that'll, that have a imaging circle big enough. Were you using the same lenses across both cameras or did you have two different sets and just lean into their yeah. strengths? Yeah, we had two different sets. So so they were both DNA lensing, Those you know, I mean, lovely. By, they're lovely. But yeah, one was made specifically for the Alexa 65, one set and the other set specifically, well, they were LF, mini LFs, uh, mm. DNA LFs, yeah. Yeah. Does, when we went to uh, Cinegear, few months ago i got to peruse all the uh the ari lenses and those dnas are just like they're too good they're too good yeah. no they're lovely and and i have to say so so yeah so what i was gonna say before and then i, I stopped myself because i also was just never sure what i'm allowed to say but we have changed the format this year i won't tell you to what um i'll leave that a surprise for it's alexa 35 or venice i bet it's venice link if it's venice <laughs> But basically, so so we changed the format, and so we changed the lens in, and part of that was because we put the DNAs on this new format, and they just we didn't we lost a lot of what was interesting on the large format from last year. Um, I, so we went a different direction. That's all I'll say. Well, I'm gonna <laughs> cut this part out, but now it's definitely the Alexa 35. Um. Do you have do you have the the cine lens manual? I do, yeah, I do, yeah. What Greatest publication book? in a deck in a in a decade. I know, I know, and I met I met those guys when I went to the ASC awards, and and I was like, I have your book, and they were like, cool, we have your show. It was just like you know, it was really nice. Yeah, Holden is. Uh, I I interviewed Holden, and I, I I suppose I can consider him a friend now. We've hung out enough, but. Uh, He's definitely, I, I've watched him interact with people at a few events where they're like gushing over, you know, they're being hyper nerdy. And I just watch him go like, yes, great. Uh-huh. You know, the dude's probably tired at this point. <laughs> but the thing with that book is just like, you know, just like your BSC book, they have to add the new, you know, that book, they'll never be finished, right? They'll just have to keep reissuing it because... People are making lenses these days like nobody's business. It's what I mean. Luckily, the first half of that book is pretty evergreen. But yeah, the second half of all just like all the stuff about every lens that's ever made. And I like I got some lenses that I was supposed to review and I opened the book, you know, basically just going to copy it for my review. And they're not in there. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. These guys spent like literally like half a decade on this thing. And they they're going to like you said, they're going to have to put inserts in or something. It is wild. Do you, do you pay much attention to how many new lenses are coming out? It seems like, uh, not to be uh, derogatory, but it seems like China's just kicking out lenses every five minutes. There's a new one coming out of there. You know, they 
the optics companies over there going nuts. Yeah. No, I mean, I I feel like every time I blink, somebody's like, oh, have you tried this? And I'm like, oh, never even heard of that. Okay, cool. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's it's an exciting time. I, uh, yeah. It's more okay. exciting on cameras. Cameras got really, they've leveled off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it's very much more exciting than cameras. I agree. Do you, uh, oh, we're coming up on time. Look at my notes. Um, good heavens. Did we talk about all this? Oh, I did want to ask, um, is there, have you had to uh, sort of change the way you think about maybe exposure or just general shooting philosophy when shooting for <clears throat> television versus something that is theoretically going straight to streaming? It's a good question. Um there has been a lot of recent discussion about exposure, but sort of more generally than that, just how dark is too dark? Is that is that the nature of your question, sort of? Or not, I mean, not specifically. The only reason I mentioned that is because obviously with, you never know how fast someone's internet is. You never know if their TV is calibrated or anything. So like a lower, if, if they're getting a lower bit rate image, any amount of dark is too dark, you know, and, and as cinematographers, we love to have like one little slash of light. But yes. I know, especially with Game of Thrones, there's a little dark. That's not specifically what I'm talking about. But just what are the considerations when thinking about a streaming show versus something that's going to terrestrial television? If there yeah. are any. Well, actually, to be honest with you, sorry, I think I actually misheard the question because in my head, I was just thinking, like, is there a difference between TV versus versus film that's meant for theatrical and that's I, sort of that's where i separate i th yeah in my mind there's no there's no separation anymore between streaming and and tv because because it all just seems like you know it's one thing and people can people can watch the same show you know both sure. all the ways right yeah. so uh, so but yeah but really the the tricky thing i think for um for people who are wanting to shoot television shows like movies is just that we have zero control over over yeah over how people watch them and 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 therefore everything can be too dark to somebody who's you know looking at well phone it later you know what i'm saying so that that's that is that is really difficult well and the other issue is like i was coloring this one music video and uh Where's my voice going? Oh, sorry. Um, I was calling this music video and the notes kept coming back like, oh, it's too saturated. It's too red. It's too saturated. It's too... And I I basically dropped the red channel out. And they're like, no, still the skin looks weird. I was like, what the hell? And then I was talking to um, Larkin Seeple, Seiple, who shot Beef and uh, everything everywhere. And he was like, oh, are they watching it on a MacBook? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you can't do that. You got to have them find an iPad or something because the red channel on that's all goofed up. And I was like, really? So I have them do that. Sure enough. They're like, oh, actually, yeah. Can we go back to version two? We're on version like eight at this point. Fuck. Yeah, it's it, it, yeah, it's interesting. What Whenever I do any remote grading, it's like iPad. Make sure you watch on your iPad. Um, and and then it seems to work. So everybody should just get iPads. <laughs> yeah, I guess that new iPad Pro, I'm not I'm not an Apple fan by any means, but the new chips are amazing and I, I guess that iPad Pro just has an amazing like very accurate screen. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have found that mine is, uh, mine's quite good. Yeah. Um, well, like you said, you've got a heart out and apparently so does my voice. So, uh, we can <laughs> wrap it up there, but, um, I would love to have you back and, and keep chatting with you. Um, cause I, I feel like I could probably come up with at least a few more questions. Uh, so when you're, uh, how about when you're done working on this show, you can come back and then, uh, we don't have to talk about that show. We can talk about whatever pencils. Sounds good. Sounds good. Pencils it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for having me and sorry I have to go, but early call times, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I watched the sun go down behind you. So I was I like, know, <laughs> I know, I know. You can just see the whole room get dark. And this, I, I was sort of playing around with the light levels in this place before and the overhead lighting, it's atrocious. So that's why it's just. I got to say, <laughs> one of the funnest things, and I've, I've never actually mentioned this, but something I look forward to is every DP's approach to how uh invested they are in their zoom <laughs> lighting obviously i send it a little bit with this but like uh yeah sometimes it's like straight i've had people just wander around their house with their iphone and then some people have had like full-on like yeah i plugged my lf into this and i'm full sky panels i'm like bro it's zoom it's fun <laughs> no but you you've done your zoom very well i uh i'm impressed but yeah this is this is uh this is hotel room living so um so yeah, I'm just all huddled by the window. Yeah. Well, um, like I said, thank you so much and uh, uh, have fun working tomorrow. Thank you so much, Kenny. Thanks for the chat. And uh, yeah. yeah, talk. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support, and as always, thanks for listening.